Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Ted Smith. He is an author and coach helping other people navigate healthy and happy relationships. He has had some unhealthy relationships himself. So he has that personal experience, which he turned into a book. And I'm excited to hear, you know, the stories that he shared, the experiences and journeys that he is currently on to get to a better place than where he was. So of course, there could be some heavy topics as he goes into some of his personal background. So Ted, why don't you say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I've had quite the journey the last couple of years. Um, things have really transformed for me. Um, I did experience an abusive relationship with a narcissistic ex-partner for 15 years. And um, I have a story to share and I have a book to explain it. And I'm, I'm here to share it as well. Um, but really, my, my go-to message is the importance of a healthy relationship with ourselves so that we can then have healthy, happy relationships with other people as well. So can you talk a little bit about this relationship that you had and kind of how you started to realize that it wasn't healthy? Yeah, absolutely. We were together for 15 years. Um, I was 17. He was 22 when we got together. And... Um, I really didn't realize how unhealthy it was until the very end. I knew for a long time that I was unhappy, um, but I couldn't pinpoint why. And for the longest time, I didn't realize the extent of the abuse and the addiction and the codependency until the very end um, with an experience that really woke me up. Um, so I'm happy to share you know, anything about the day-to-day the -day life in those 15 years we can also talk about the um, the experience that allowed me to wake up um, and, you know, the understanding that followed. And was this your first ever serious relationship? I dated a girl for four years in high school. Um, we had a, a good relationship, but um, I am gay. So there was one critical component missing from that relationship. Um, we actually didn't break up for that reason. We had decided we kind of took a journey together on that. And um, I had thought that maybe I was bisexual um, because I did enjoy being with her and I was attracted to her. I just wasn't attracted to other women for whatever, for other girls or women for, other, for whatever reason. Um, we broke up just because it felt like a natural stopping point for us. Um, but, you know, I was, that was as a teenager. So to answer your question, um, you know, we, my ex-husband and I got together when I was 17. I ended it when I was 32. So for 15 years, that was the only adult relationship I had ever experienced. And have you experienced any relationships since? I have. Yeah. So um, again, we've been apart for about two years now. Um, last year, I experienced a 10-month relationship with a different man. Um, that was my first experience with a healthy relationship. Um, it was a really great experience to um, be with someone who is patient and loving and kind and supportive and funny and, you know, fun to be around all these things that I didn't experience for 15 years. Um, we ended things because uh, there were things that just weren't sitting right with me toward the end, but it was 
the reasons I ended that relationship were very, very different from why I ended the the marriage. Um, and then, you know, since then I've been just kind of dating and I, I feel like a gaby because I'm, I'm new to the gay world, basically, um, being out in the dating world and kind of having fun for the first time, experiencing what a lot of people experience in their teenage years and 20s that I never really got to because I was in a serious relationship for so long. Right. So what was the unfortunate day-to-day life for you, like, when you were in your marriage? Yeah. We were we were together for 15 years, married for the last three of those. And, oh, where to start? So um, it involved emotional abuse, addiction, and codependency. Um, he was a severe alcoholic. And um, for the last 10 years of our relationship, he had significant health issues, um, which we learned later all stemmed back to his alcohol use. I had thought for many years that maybe there was some underlying cause of what caused all his symptoms, but really it could all be tied back to alcohol. Um, And on top of that, that kind of physical health component, uh, he was emotionally abusive as well. So a lot of days would involve fighting and explosions and things like that. But I think really what caused even more, you know, so I'm I'm recovering from complex PTSD. And the reason it's complex is because it wasn't one isolated incident that occurred. It was evolving over time and every day and there would be days that were fine um but the next day wouldn't be (laughs) or even sometimes hour to hour things were different i never really knew what to expect from him in any given moment and that like constant hyper vigilance of having to guess like what version of him I was going to get from one moment to the next really did a number on me. Um, It's been a journey to kind of recover from that anxiety. I still, for a while there, I've been away from him for two years, but like anytime I would see a type of vehicle that he used to drive, I'd get this like sinking feeling in my stomach. When I would come home you know, return to my house, I would have this sinking feeling thinking he'd be waiting for me in the driveway. Um, all these things, and I had nightmares for um, for a good while after ending things uh, that just felt so real. Um, they were in the sense that like in the dream, I I knew in my mind that we had broken up, but the scenario in front of me in the dream was that we were back together and I'm like, Oh God, I got to get back out of this. How did this happen? Um, so all sorts of different things related to that. Um, we did fight a decent amount for the first five years. I didn't really stand up to him. I just kind of took, took the abuse and was constantly apologizing to him for things that I may or may not have been guilty of. And then for, some reason I started to stand up to him and that's when things got more um, explosive, more chaotic between us. Um, It really didn't matter if, you know, my side of the story was the very, very clear right answer about something that doesn't matter when you're dealing with somebody who's a narcissist or a sociopath or a psychopath. Um, 
there's there's not really a concept of compromise in those situations. Um, so really, it, it took in our arguments and fights, it would take me apologizing, um, you know, saying he was right for him to finally kind of get off my back, um, no matter how hard I tried. So, and then you know there were good days, good moments sprinkled in there. And because of those moments, that's really one of the primary reasons why I didn't realize that what was happening was abuse. There's a cycle to abuse where there's this like buildup of tension, and then there's an explosion, and then there's a reconciliation, and then there's a period of calm. And I had always understood emotional abuse to be just constant ridicule and condescension and fighting and yelling and all these things. And so I didn't piece together that, you know, the good moments were intentional. They were manipulative. They were his way of getting me to stick around. And that's what abusers do. They intentionally, you know, quote unquote, love bomb their target to get them to stay longer. People, I think, don't understand why people stay in abusive relationships for so long. And that's one of the big reasons is this um, clinging on to those good times and expecting they'll continue and they never do. <laughs> um, and, you know, it just kind of clouds your judgment. I, like I said, I knew I wasn't happy, but I had kind of resigned myself that this was going to be my life forever. So what was that moment that helped you wake up? So his alcoholism um, got worse and worse over the years, and he had issues with seizures. Um, so about five years into our relationship, he had his first grand mal seizure. It was after a night of heavy drinking. Um, so they got him on seizure medication, which moderated things. Um, but over the course of the last decade of our relationship, I noticed that the more he drank, the worse his symptoms got. And his symptoms could range from, uh, there's a whole list of things that I put in my book that's like, you know, it's four lines long because it was so many things, dizziness, weakness, um, confusion, trouble sleeping, headaches, body pain, all these things. Um, and for 10 years, there would be any combination of those that would happen on a day-to-day -day basis. But they all kind of came to head um, three months before I left him. Uh, his alcoholism had gotten so bad that his body couldn't go eight hours without it. It was so dependent. His body went into shock, and he had three grand mal seizures in one night. I called 911, and paramedics came and took him to the hospital. He was admitted to the ICU for a week going through alcohol withdrawal. Um, they uh, used different medications and things to um, successfully and um, you know, clinically withdraw him from alcohol and Xanax, which he was also taking. They told me that if I hadn't called 911 that night, he probably would have died like on the spectrum of alcoholism, really his next step was death. There wasn't really anything beyond that. And his the, the seizures were his body's way of crying out for help. And 
the you know different clinical protocols and medicinal frequency and things like that if they hadn't done that in a certain way he could have died in the hospital so it's a very um very careful process that they have to follow that week in the icu is not something i would wish on anyone um watching someone's body go through alcohol withdrawal is something that you see in movies and tv but you never really think is something that's possible for you to witness yourself he went through hallucinations um he the level of anger was something unlike i had ever seen and that's really saying something <laughs> um i i felt at times that there was like a demon trapped inside him it was horrific but the extreme the extremeness of that experience allowed me to finally wake up and realize i can't do this anymore i need help I hadn't decided to leave him at this point because I believed, I still believed things could get better. But I did at least start to seek help for myself. So I started to go to therapy and Al-Anon, which is the equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's for the family members and friends of alcoholics. And those two things honestly saved my life. Um, without them, I'm certain I would have slipped back into the old patterns of believing things would change but not actually doing anything to change things and it just allowed you know that kind of holy crap moment um allowed me to kind of step back and realize with a new perspective what the heck i had been doing for 15 years <laughs> um it was about a month after that that I discovered what narcissism was. I didn't understand what it was until then. I thought a narcissist was someone who was just self-absorbed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my ex-husband. Like, yeah, sure. I did not realize the extent of the emotional abuse and manipulation that comes with being with a narcissist. And I read this blog post written by a woman who was married to a narcissist, and I'm like, oh my god i'm reading about my life and she shared at the end of that um that she hosts a or she she's an admin for a facebook support group for people who live with narcissist emotional abuse so i joined that and post after post after post i'm like i had no idea there were other people going through the same thing that i was and that there was a name for what I was experiencing. Um, so there was a lot of waking up <laughs> that happened in three months' time. And it's so, you know, it's things have changed for me very rapidly in the last two years. And it's so interesting to compare it to 15 years when I basically didn't grow at all. I was very stagnant. It was pretty much the same thing day in, day out. Um, and now things are just very different. And so how were you able to get out? With the help of my therapist and that support group, I learned the safest way to leave a narcissist was to leave and cut off all contact. Um, there was a point about a month and a half. So 
following the stint in the ICU, he um, they had strongly recommended that he spend a month in inpatient rehab. He agreed to it for a week and decided it wasn't for him and came home. Um, and because of that, because he wasn't able to fully mentally detox from the alcohol, um, his mind still associated alcohol with the solution to all his problems. And he would view me as the barrier between what he needed and him. So you can imagine how volatile that time period was. Um, again, and that's saying something compared to the, the 15 years leading up to that. About a month and a half, you know, after he got back home, his drinking had escalated to a point that I, again, I mean, he started drinking a couple of weeks after being back from the hospital and I could see where things were headed and it got to the point where I, I was uncomfortable. I packed a bag and I told him, I said, I'm going to stay somewhere else temporarily. I need some time to think. And in that conversation, he threatened suicide if I were to leave. And I believed him. So I agreed to stay with the stipulation that he returned to seeking help. So he agreed to that. I very quickly realized that both of those things, both the suicide threat and the promise to get help, were both lies. They were both forms of manipulation to get me to stay. And so with the help of my therapist and that support group, that's when I learned and decided that I would I would need to cut off all contact and just leave him. Um, so the way I went about that was to to get all my ducks in a row. Um, so opening my own bank account and making a list of things that I, I wanted to take with me and things like that. I only told one friend that I was going to stay with about my plan because I didn't want anyone to let on, even unintentionally, to him what the plan was. Um, I just couldn't risk that. And one day when I, I knew he was going to be away from the house for at least a couple hours, I scrambled to pack as much as I could um, and left him. I left a note that said, I'm filing for divorce. I can't do this anymore. Um, and I gave him a month to pack his stuff and, and leave our house. And since that day, I have, no, I have not had any direct contact with him. So was it easy, in quotes, I'll say, to get the divorce finalized and get everything <laughs> settled with the house? Um, that's an interesting question. I, it could have been a lot more difficult, I will say that. I am very grateful that he and I never adopted kids. That would have added a very complicated layer to everything, including my ability to cut off all contact with him. So for that, I am extremely grateful. The divorce process took about seven months, um, which, as I've shared that with other people, they're like, oh, that's not that long. It felt very long, though. And what was frustrating is that if he had cooperated better, it really could have been finalized in two or three months. Um, but it was dragged out by both him and his lawyer for various reasons, um, none of which were all that surprising because it really was just kind of the same 
behavior that I would see him be and do during our relationship. I'm very fortunate, though, that, you know, I was always the primary breadwinner in our relationship, so finances weren't an issue. I know that is a major challenge, and honestly, sometimes for abused people, it's the one reason why they stay is because they don't believe they can afford to live on their own. Um, so in that respect, I, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I was able to afford that expensive divorce. <laughs> um, and uh, honestly, some of the best money I've ever spent. So no regrets there. <laughs> right. So why did you decide to write a book about your experience? Sure. So about a month after I left him, I discovered an organization called Gay Man Thriving. They have a Facebook group. They provide coaching programs to gay men. And I joined their programs very quickly. And a few months later, they hosted a retreat in person. And at that event, I shared my story. And the number of guys that would come up to me during breaks and share how much my story meant to them, tell me I was an inspiration. I had never heard those words before. It's honestly probably one of the best compliments I could ever receive is you're, you're an inspiration. From guys both who were in abused relationships or abusive relationships, as well as others, what really struck me was one, one man came up to me and said, you know, I've never been in an abusive relationship, but what I got from your story was that it's never too late for you to take control of your life and to choose happiness for yourself. And I was like, oh, so my story can be impactful not only to people in similar situations, but it goes beyond that as well. So in the months that followed, I got sprinkles of ideas of becoming both a coach as well as an author. The, the book idea actually came from a, a session with a psychic um, I had not thought of it. I had I had been kind of down the path of, you know, maybe I could become a coach like like my coaches were, like to help people. But I hadn't thought of writing a book. I, I wrote a couple fiction, I'll put in quote, novels um, as a teenager. Um, and when I left my ex-husband, I thought, you know, maybe I could revisit some of those stories because I enjoy writing, but it just didn't feel like something I wanted to to pick back up. But then... I uh, had that session with a psychic and he said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I told him, you know, what I just shared about the fiction stories. And he said, well, that's not what I'm seeing for you. I'm seeing a book about your story. It's about relationships. Um, and it's going to be a, f a form for you to, to help people. And that's what got the gears turning. So um, very interesting turn of events. <laughs> Did you go into that psychic, like believing in psychics or were you skeptical? Yeah, no, I, so with psychics, I'm into lots of woo woo and spiritual stuff. Um, I understand that there are many psychics that are hacks, <laughs> um, but I also believe there are many psychics that are very gifted and actually, you know, they they are 
they're gifted in terms of being able to channel things and, and things like that. And I knew within a few minutes of talking to the psychic that, you know, he was saying things that there's no way he could have known about me, even with a social media search or anything like that. So I knew he was legit. And what were you doing professionally before, if you don't mind answering that? Yeah, I I had and still have a uh, a corporate gig. I'm an employee benefits consultant, so we help large employers with the benefit packages they offer their employees. Um, there are many things about my job that I love. There's great flexibility, and I love my team, and the money's great. The money is what provided me the ability to um, to publish my book and to participate in these coaching programs. So I'm very grateful for it. However, um, pricing and a nego- negotiating life insurance rates and disability, you know, uh, plans and things like that is not really something that lights me up. <laughs> so I'm in the process of transitioning slowly, not, you know, quitting this job and moving immediately into coaching full time. Um, but I'm in that transition period. And what is it like with coaching? What are you specifically working on with people? Yeah, my I would say my theme is relationships, but the primary relationship being the one you have with yourself. Because as I learned, that is the most important relationship. In my experience, what I didn't realize was, you know, I hated how much my ex-husband treated me. I did not realize, though, that the extent of the abuse that I experienced from him is exactly what I was doing to myself inside. I was allowing him to treat me that way because I was doing the same thing to myself. So it's been really important to me to learn how to love myself and be kind to myself and be patient with myself. An ongoing journey for me. And that's something that I want to help people with because really when you have a healthy relationship with yourself, not only relationships with other people, but even your career, your, your physical body, all sorts of things kind of fall into place when your first priority is nurturing that healthy relationship with yourself. And when you talk about having a relationship with yourself, I would guess that a lot of people don't think about that and don't necessarily know what they should be doing to, you know, be working on a journey of self-love. So what's the best way for someone to start realizing that, hey, maybe their relationship with themselves isn't great? Yeah. Awareness is probably the first um, really important step. Like just thinking about sitting with, are you happy? Like truly, truly happy. And I, you know, I, this is kind of the opening section of my book. It's maybe you are, and that's great. It's possible you may think you are, and you're really not, <laughs> or you won't admit to yourself that you're actually unhappy. And if so, like, what are those reasons? Um, so I would say awareness is the first step. Um, I'm a big proponent of getting outside perspective, whether it be from a therapist or a coach. I believe those individuals can help really anybody, even people who are feel like they're doing well, not going through major challenges. Um, because the kind of dichotomy that we have going on here is 
the healing and the the work and the awareness of ourselves it's it's our work to do alone like it's it's our work to do ourselves but to do it alone is only so effective with the help of other people it's um it's it's way more effective and transformational there's this tunnel vision that we can have when we're in our own heads 24/7 and what i have found is that the help of an outsider whether even if with with friends and family or whoever you want to confide in i i noticed this in my own life like and i'm talking to other people in the conversations there's a very clear um answer of what they could and should do or just a different perspective to offer that again when we're in our own heads 24 7 we don't necessarily think about because we're so fixated on one way of thinking um and sometimes all it takes is one person saying have you ever thought about x and it's like oh <laughs> um and then in addition to those things you know i've picked up meditation and various other techniques that really promote self-care physical exercise you know taking care of your body those are really important as well and what is your hope for your future happiness peace joy abundance um thriving relationships with myself and with other people i you know i will be making a career out of helping people in whatever form that may take um i am so grateful you know a lot of people say they hear my story and they say oh i'm so sorry you went through that and i understand where that's coming from but now I'm so grateful for it. I don't want to repeat <laughs> those 15 years. But, you know, even if I had ended that relationship a year earlier, I would not have gotten the full, rich, sacred experience that I got. And that is now allowing me to share that and embody that and provide advice about that to other people. So we all, everything happens for a reason. And we all go through our experiences for one reason or another oftentimes i believe that you know there's this this phrase make your mess your message basically the the biggest challenges that we go through we're meant to go through them so that we can help other people yeah i've never heard that before the make your mess your message i really like that so do you ever think that you might get married again and or adopt children it's a great question i don't know um where I'm at currently, so that 10-month relationship that I mentioned, I've been out of that for about seven months at this point. And so I'm, again, that mentioned of being a gaby, I'm basically seven months into being single for the first time. There was a five-month gap between my ex-husband and the next guy I dated, but those five months were so raw and just new that I don't really count that. Um so where I'm at now is there there's some desire to have, you know, like flings and just kind of have some fun. But I I feel like I want something more meaningful than that. However, 
I'm also not in a place where I feel ready or willing to to begin a serious relationship. And that's not it's not a um oh marriage you know, marriage doesn't work or relationships don't work. I'm anti you know, I just I'm gonna be single forever by choice. It's none of that. It's I'm it's taking my own advice of cultivating a healthy relationship with myself. I hadn't lived alone until two years ago, so I lived 32 years with someone else. I went from my parents' house to the college dorm to living with my ex-husband. And living alone is freaking awesome. <laughs> um, being able to to do things on my own time and only have to worry about myself. Even in a healthy relationship with somebody else, like you still have to worry about, well, are we going to eat dinner at the same time? And, you know, just little things. And it's just, it's so refreshing to only have to worry about myself. Um, I see committed relationships in my future. I don't know if I'll get married again. I'm in a place now where, and, and again, it's not like anti-marriage. Just, it's not that. It's, um, I, I have evolved and changed so quickly over the last two years. Like I'm not the same person I was a month ago, let alone a year ago. That. I just, I don't feel like it's realistic to commit to someone forever. Um, that may change. I don't know. But right now I'm just in a period of really being intentionally present with my relationships um, and not not focusing too much on the future. Yeah. And I think you can hear that in the way you speak about it and kind of not knowing, um, but being with yourself and figuring out things going forward. So what is it like, you know, you've used the word gayby, so fresh into the gay scene. <laughs> have you have you had any issues or has things been going well for the short time it's been? Yeah, for the last seven months, I've had some experiences. Um, I've been on Tinder and um, I made one really good friend that I met on Tinder, so that has been really cool. I did have one doozy of an experience with a guy who, um, when we first met, I like almost instantly fell in love. Like it was a love drug sort of thing, and I, it was when I had just downloaded Tinder, and so, um. I'm like a week into this and I'm like, oh my God, this whole thing that I set for myself of dating for a while and dating multiple people and taking things slow. Like, I don't know if that's, if that's right. Like, I think this guy's the one. <laughs> and then within a couple of weeks, I realized um, he was very much not the one. <laughs> I started seeing signs that reminded me of my ex-husband Um and you know listening to my body and my gut just being like nope this is not okay and so um i very quickly ended that and there was some minor stalking and stuff that ensued following that and so like just clear evidence that i made the right decision so that was an experience <laughs> but what it taught me what it showed me is that i can trust myself now you know it took me 15 years to realize that my ex-husband wasn't right for me. And for this guy, it took me two or three weeks. And so that to me shows considerable growth. 
there's a lot of people who um they're they're in an abusive relationship they get out of it they start dating someone else it feels awesome and then all of a sudden they realize or it just kind of gradually evolves and they're in another abusive relationship um it happens over time and so we we don't realize it at first because again there's that that love drug at the beginning where everything there seems perfect and what i've learned is again the importance of having a healthy relationship with yourself knowing your body knowing your gut instincts knowing when to listen to your like your inner guidance system um so that you can be aware of those red flags when they happen and not end up repeating patterns of those abusive situations yeah well it's great to hear that you've definitely and it's been evident in so much you've said that you've come such a long way now completely off topic and it hasn't been mentioned since we've been recording but i would like to hear about your cats (laughs) i'm happy to talk about my cats um i have two boys peachy and joey they are 15 years old. I got them when they were three months old. So um, they have been with me for a very long time. And I've actually, I have had other cats as well that I got as adults after Peachy and Joy, and then they passed away. So it's back to the, it's back to the OGs. Um, and it's, I, I love them. They mean a lot to me. Um, they have different personalities, which I love. Um, but, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about Peachy and how mischievous he is. I have noticed that um, he tends to act up when I least expect it and when I least want it to happen. <laughs> he has really been uh, behaving during this call, though. He's sleeping next to his brother right now, so that's good. And Joey just kind of lays there. <laughs> so it's a little more lower maintenance great thank you now is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners you know lately i've really been focusing in on the importance of presence for the longest time and i it's still very much something that i've been learning how to do you know, for 15 years, I I couldn't deal with the present moment. So I would either long for things that have, you know, the good moments of the past, or I would be focused on the future. And really, I had a, one of my coping mechanisms was to like, plan out all possible future scenarios. And that was a way to protect myself. Like, well, if I do this, then he's probably going to respond this way. And if he responds that way, then I need like, like all these branching off points. Um, I I didn't live in the present. I was constantly focused on a different time. And what I have found is that there is there is so much more joy and peace and happiness in the present moment. There's like life is really beautiful when we can just sit and notice what's happening around us without those thoughts of you know your to-do list and Oh, what am I gonna do tomorrow? Like, what's what's what am I having for dinner tonight? Like, two years ago, I would hear people talk about being present, and I didn't really know what that meant. And like, it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Um, 
but you know meditation has really helped me learn to practice being present something that i would recommend for anybody especially those of us you know listening who are often stressed out experience a lot of anxiety meditation has really worked for me to kind of calm that mind chatter that monkey mind that squirrel brain whatever you want to call it that inner voice that that never shuts up <laughs> um it really works it, t- it takes practice you know I, I wouldn't expect changes in in one session but if you do it regularly it's it's uh it's really helpful so yeah i just wanted to put that nugget out there about being present yeah and i think that's really important and something that everyone can hear now, you talking about that made me remember something you said as well before we were recording. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but I think you said something along the lines of being a recovering perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Can you ta- yep. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I. So I've been doing some intensive group therapy experiences, and one of the things that came up recently was how as a kid, I... Um, developed a perfectionism as a way to get attention and a way to be loved. Um, And that carried through adulthood. I'm still, like I said, recovering from that. Um, You know, I was a straight A student and did all the things you're supposed to do in school. I was always very well behaved and all these things. Um, And that in a lot of ways can be good. But at the same time, Honestly, that coupled with um, my own struggles with coming out, like the shame around that, the perfectionism is a big part of what led to the self-abuse. You know, if I wasn't doing something right, quote unquote right or perfect, um, I, I was not very kind to myself about that. And setting such high, unrealistic expectations for myself did not serve me very well. Um, It served me for the time because now I'm able to speak about it. Um, But it was unnecessary um, abuse and just really, really um, painful thoughts toward myself that I now want to change to be kinder, more patient, more respectful. Unless, you know, it's very rare that we expect perfect perfection from other people. We realize that that other humans are imperfect and that's okay. So just like anything else, like, you know, my suggestion <laughs> would be that we apply that same logic to ourselves. I I often held myself to a higher standard than other people um and still do to some degree. I'm working on that. Um but there's a lot of undue angst and stress that comes with that and just learning to to embrace imperfection and that imperfection is perfect in its own way. Yeah. Now, before we wrap things up, would you be willing to share a little bit about your coming out story since, you know, you got into yeah. a serious relationship at 17. So what was that like? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in Illinois. Um, and this was like early 2000s so the a time that was um i would say considerably less accepting than the world we live in today um i i lived in a very sheltered environment at home for a while i didn't even know 
gayness was a thing. Um, it wasn't until the bullies on the school bus, you know, taunted me for being gay that I even learned that what gayness was. Um, and then as I like hit puberty, I started having, you know, thoughts. Um, but then I met that girl and I was very confused because, um, you know, I really enjoyed being with her and I was attracted to her and all these things. Um, we were together four years and about one year in, into our relationship, um, I told her I might be gay and she was the first person I ever came out to. And I, I think I was expecting understanding and compassion and uh, I don't really know what I was expecting because understandably, you know, when the guy who she'd been with for a year and we were, you know, teenagers in puppy love and we were talking about being together forever, all these things. But, you know, when, when the guy she's dating tells her this, she did not react well. Um, and so it was something we navigated together for a few years. And like I said at the beginning, I concluded that I was bisexual um, because I I enjoyed being with her. Um, and then she and I ended things three months after that. I met my ex-husband. Um, and shortly after that, my mom picked up on, there's something going on with this guy, isn't there? Um, and she approached me about it. On Thanksgiving Day tends to be, for, for whatever reason, Thanksgiving Day tends to be a big coming out day for a lot of LGBTQ plus individuals, I've learned. Um, my parents were very supportive. My mom ended up being the one to tell most of my family for me. So, like, I didn't even have to go through that, you know, coming out experience. I There were varying degrees of acceptance among friends and family, but I, all in all, I had one of the probably easiest smoothest experiences as far as coming out that was not part of my struggle my challenge my journey there was something else waiting for me <laughs> shortly after that so yeah now at the end with all of my guests i ask a random question that doesn't have to do with anything we've talked about it's just something a little bit different so my question for you is, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? Oh, I love that question. Um, only a million? <laughs> <laughs> um, the two biggest things that I, I desire money for, um, in addition to, you know, giving back in different ways, is... I would love to have multiple homes across the U.S. Um, I love to travel, so I would love to travel the world with as much of the remaining million dollars as possible. So multiple homes and, um, and travel is what I use it for. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving a Linktree link for Ted in the description, so that brings you to all of his good information, his social media, how to buy his book, how to get in contact with him, check him out on other podcasts, whatever you would like to do, it will all be in that Linktree for him. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast here, our website is also in the description as usual, which will bring you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And if you would like to support the podcast, the Patreon link there as well. 
And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd always love to have you. You can just send me an email and I'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much, Ted, for spending time with me today. And for my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.